in the conflict or the dilemma between security and human rights or security and civil liberties, which side did he come down? I agree with you. It doesn't sound like, um, in his point of view, you can't have both. It's, it's a really cruel world out there. Uh, if you want to have freedom, go live in Sweden, if you can. But if you're, if you're in a dangerous neighborhood like Israel, Palestine, or the United States and its enemies, maybe you don't get those kinds of choices. Anybody agree, disagree? might be justified by a utilitarian calculation. That's a very good a recollection of the previous lecture and introduction that I gave, as opposed to what? Well, I'm saying, isn't it devaluing the lives like, and just placing them as collateral damage? How does, that, how does it make you any different than a terrorist? OK, well, let me just briefly say that utilitarianism is the most good for the mo on, on average, but doesn't have rights that trump the majority. Or, or the society. So uh, collateral damage, if you could say that you know, your right to life trumps the outsider's right to their own life by killing a military target and civilians who happen to be right there, then the utilitarian argument falls or, or survives based on whether you accept rights or not. So uh, the laws of war, sometimes called international humanitarian law, based on the 1949 Geneva Conventions, plus something else in international law called state practice and sense of legal obligation. But international law does say that if the military target is a military target, bona fide, valid, and the civilians killed meet the test of necessity, proportionality, and civilian immunity, then you the, the lives can be lost. What are those three tests? Necessity says you absolutely must target that military target. That's less to do with the civilians. Proportionality says you must use the minimum use of, uh, sorry, you must use the, only the minimum in order to achieve that military objective. So you can't kill 30 civilians if you could have all gotten the same target and only killed two. And for that matter, soldiers, you can't kill 50 soldiers. If your goal is just to get that base, and you can get that base killing five, then it's illegal to kill 50. Um, and then civilian immunity is the toughest of all, because theoretically, you certainly can't target civilians. The question is, is the civilian right to life harmed by collateral damage to a legitimate military objective? And this is where people disagree from a legal point of view. People disagree, lawyers, scholars, uh -huh. public opinion, as to how much uh, civilian collateral damage is legal, or if it's a philosophical debate, how much is ethical. You follow me? Mm -hmm. So um, <clears throat> on the ground in Afghanistan, today's topic, 
or almost any other war you can think of, one civilian life is unethical, a tragedy, and illegal probably, from their point of view, right? Bad enough to kill one of our soldiers, but to kill a civilian, that's a war crime. Well, according to the laws of war, it's only a war crime if the civilian was targeted or uh, the civilian death was not necessary and proportionate to the, to the military objective. Politically, almost everybody who suffers a loss of a family member or a friend would say that's a war crime if it's a civilian who dies. But that's not the way the law of war has been developed. Furthermore, the concept of treachery is that you can't use the laws of war to, to deceive your enemy. So for example, you can't hide a military bunker in a hospital. Because the hospital is immune. You can never attack, never deliberately attack civilians generally or a civilian hospital in particular. And you know, unless you've got some legitimate reason, like it's the only building in town, it would be always illegal to do that. So I have the right, as your enemy, to shoot your military command. And if you choose to put that command in a bunker in a hospital, that collateral damage of everyone dying in the hospital is your fault, not mine. In some sense, at least according to the laws of war, that's an easy case because you have an obligation not to situate yourself there. The problem or the rub for the developing world who regards all this as European or Western or American imperialism is they don't fight wars the way we fight them. We have a big technological and conventional advantage. They don't. So they fight what is called asymmetric warfare, hit and run, ambushes, um, not following the requirements of uniforms, holding your arms out openly, not wearing an insignia, not necessarily even having a command structure because you want to not be captured and then be tortured or not tortured, as the case may be, and tell everybody who's interviewing you exactly how the force is structured because that's important strategic information. It may not qualify as quote-unquote actionable intelligence, but it's important knowledge to know, you know what the overall structure is because you're going to develop your military strategy. According to the laws of war, I can't ask you anything, but the United States and most countries always interrogate somebody who they call unlawful, that is, doesn't meet the requirements of wearing a uniform, holding your arms out openly, having insignia showing, etc. So in places like Afghanistan, but throughout most of the developing world, not only do you have asymmetric warfare, guerrilla style or some other terrorist style that violate the laws of war, um, they don't want to follow the Western colonial imperial laws of war as they perceive them because from that, from that point of view, the only way you can fight is in an open field and whichever side is more people and more ferocious arms is going to win, and we lose every time. So the Westerners are, uh, used to say this is treachery for you to not fight fairly, that is to hide in, in civilian locations. But that's a lost cause, because if we're in a war with in, in Baghdad or Kabul, Kandahar, you name it, they're not going to come out in the open and have us shoot them. By the way, the United States, did we fight the British in open warfare? Well, we did in some famous battles that we lost, like the Battle of Saratoga, when the British thought they were going to win the American Revolutionary War in a few weeks. <clears throat> so how do we go to fight? 
guerrilla style, asymmetric warfare. Why? Because they had firepower and numbers. They were based in Canada, their colonial, well, they're based in the United States as well. Uh, what became the United States, or was declared as the United States at the time. So the United States has found itself in a variety of irregular wars, not classic conventional wars. And the, today's reading Afghanistan is just a case study, like a lot of case studies, like Vietnam, like the Bosnian War was as much irregular as regular, asymmetric as, as not, depending on who, who we were fighting. We, we didn't fight it counterinsurgency style. Um, now, the two theories of how the United States should fight in Afghanistan, one is suggested by Vice President Biden, who made the same comment in the region when he was um, a senator, which is, we ought to fight, quote unquote, counter-terrorism. Anybody know what that means? Against terrorism, but in terms of strategy, is an overall, the, the other thing is counterinsurgency. So what is counterterrorism that's not counterinsurgency? Or put it this way, what is Biden favored that Petraeus, the former commander in, in Iraq, who took over from a crystal in Afghanistan, actually technically a demotion, although he didn't lose a star for it. Is that when you're like just searching people on a regular basis? Like? That's kind of it. It, it, it's primarily killing their terrorists. That's it. You know, we just we'll fight till we kill them all. Believe it or not, that's cheaper than counterinsurgency in many ways, by many dimensions. Counterterrorism says, look, um, we can't change hearts and minds. We can't nation build. We can't create a government. We can't police their neighborhoods. We can't provide their hospitals. We can't keep them safe. We can't win their hearts and minds. We can't win public opinion. We're just there to protect ourselves, and we're going to go out there and kill every terrorist we can find, given the resources we've allocated. And we, we realize that we're, no, we're not creating a government that's loyal to us. We realize that uh, this strategy may never get the, ever, the very last terrorist, but at least it will reduce the scope of the problem. And our goal is not to eliminate terrorism. We can't do that. Our, we just don't want another 9-11, at least coming out of Afghanistan. By the way, in, aside from all those things I just mentioned, which are what counterinsurgency tries to do, nation build, keep the people safe, have them like us as opposed to just fear us, there's another view, uh, which is the criminal justice approach, which the United States has never considered since the 9-11 attacks. But it is the approach of most of the world towards terrorism, which is you use criminal justice methods, you give uh, individual criminals their rights in court. Um, and that sounds like ridiculous to an American, but that's what most of the people do. And in fact, we have successfully tried since 9-11 about 150 uh, terrorists in civilian trials, Article Three courts, Article Three of the Constitution. Uh, and we've only successfully convicted in military commissions three under Bush and one under Obama. Uh, military commissions have just been in Guantanamo itself. Oddly enough, Obama, it's a little bit off topic, but relates to the subject last time, um, along with McCain, campaigned to close Guantanamo and to use civilian courts whenever possible. 
But the Congress, especially the Senate last December, decided we're not going to close Guantanamo because we're not going to give you the money to move people out, even though it costs an average of $60,000 per inmate at Guantanamo as opposed to 28000 which is high enough in the average penitentiary in the United States. But it's a sunken cost. They built the various camps there within the naval base uh, and so forth. But, you know, it's, it's proven we can, you know, at least high-profile defendants, so we have plenty of information on, uh, can convict. And even this last case, I think it was in November, of the guy who rented the car for one of the two embassy bombings in 1998 was exonerated in all but one count. About 50 counts he was not guilty, or 40. He was only guilty of one, which is a, being an accessory to terrorism or something of that aiding, abetting terrorism, whatever it is. He got 20 years just the last week. I think he got his sentence. So even in a situation in the civilian court which was regarded as a failure, uh, he's still, they're still putting away this guy 20 years. And you know, based on what I, I know about the case, or at least what he claimed, was that he really, they were using him to rent a car so that nobody in the plot would be linked on any official record so that they couldn't go after the various people interrogate them, maybe torture them, and, and, and get the information. So you know, the, the criminal justice approach is neither counterterrorism nor counterinsurgency as ideal type models, you know, as pure forms, not the exact way we go about doing things, because everything's a little combination of everything. But as theoretical strategy options, they do distinguish three ways we could have gone about it. You know, it just it absolutely, if I asked you now, uh, on November, September 12, 2001, this class being a little bit older than the typical freshman sophomore, most of you remember 2001, 9/11, uh, right? Anybody not remember? Oh, you obviously have all seen the video 60,000 times. So if you didn't, you didn't, you never saw it at the time. You were in second grade. My son was in. My son was in kindergarten. He's only in ninth now, so that puts you in eleventh. Maybe you were in fifth grade. How old are you now? Eighteen in college. Wow. Okay. Well, you probably were in second grade. Well, my. Well, you guys are traditional age for this class, but you know, there are other people in the class closer to my age. Not much closer, but closer. Anyway, my point is that you know we none of you probably, if I asked you now or if I asked you then, would say, what are we going to do about Afghanistan? How many people would have said, oh, let's send in the police and just arrest a few people? Nobody would have said that, right? Would anyone have said that? I mean, everybody said, you know, let's get them. You know, that's a basically they didn't say it like that, but that's kind of what people, you know, revenge, right? I mean, let's call it, is that what it is? That part, right? Part of it is a very coldly calculated, you know, we have to s protect ourselves, we've got to stop Al-Qaeda. Incidentally, under the laws of war at that time, it was by no means clear that we had the right to go in there. Anyone know why? Sorry? Who it was. Well, I was sure who it was Al-Qaeda because I knew about the USS Cole and everything else. but. No, I'm talking about whether it was legal, not whether it was whether well, we knew who did it. Didn't I mean, officially, they didn't say Al Qaeda until about the time we went three weeks later, if I remember correctly. You're right about that. 
They did. They did declare war eventually. Not eventually, but not. We've only formally declared war in U.S. history four or five times, depending on how you count. This was more like the Gulf of Tonkin resolution in Vietnam. It's kind of like we're authorizing a military action, and on that basis, John Yu, the author of the torture memos, more generally said, within the Office of Legal Counsel, as the lawyer for the government, therefore Congress and the courts have no checks and balances on the president which is just an amazing phenomenon in American history that we basically authorized the president on foreign affairs to be a dictator. The Congress couldn't even have oversight, let alone tell him what he could do or couldn't do. Now, whether that would have held up in a, in a trial, I don't know. But um, Obama's changed that interpretation. But for eight years, theoretically, according to Bush's own lawyer, the president was not subject to court or legislative oversight on foreign policy. Um, the reason that it might not have been legal is that traditionally self-defense, which has always been a legal justification for the use of force, was defined based on a battle in the War of 1812 taking place in upstate New York, um, based on a statement by Daniel Webster, senator, that self-defense is instantaneous, and, and instantaneous because you're defending yourself, therefore you don't have the time to think about it. And until 9-11, international law took the position that self-defense is always legitimate in every case where it's instantaneous. Every previous attempt to do preemptive self-defense, such as Israel's attack on Egypt and Jordan in the Six-Day War in 1967, was regarded as illegal even though Israel said, look, they're about to attack us. But the law construed narrowly says you're not allowed to defend yourself until you've been attacked. Um, so the world acquiesced in the United States saying, look, we are taking our time, three weeks, it wasn't a lot of time, to invade. Um, and we're planning it, we're going to do it right. And, and not one, of the, one of the legal consequences of 9-11 was Afghanistan became the precedent for saying some preemptive self-defense under some conditions can be legal. In this case, we were attacked. Israel has a harder case making uh, the case for the Six-Day War simply because they hadn't formally been attacked. The Gulf of Aqaba had been blockaded. Troops had been mobilized on its border and so forth. So. Uh, you could make the case that even though Israel wasn't attacked, the Six-Day War was a legal, not an illegal war. That's not an issue dealing with what happened after the war with the occupation, which is a separate and equally controversial question. So um, the two options the United States faced, since we didn't say it's going to be a criminal justice operation, which would primarily mean you could only shoot to kill if the person resisted arrest. It's a practical matter that may not make any difference. Now you, and criminal justice approach wouldn't necessarily have to be restricted to police. It could be military police, right? Um, but I, I think there is one point to emphasize that either under a counterterrorism approach as opposed to a nation-building approach or a criminal justice approach, we would have gotten bin Laden. I don't know how important it is to get bin Laden because Al-Qaeda has just become this international network of self-started groups. And oh, bin Laden doesn't like sit in the controls and say, 
okay, Madrid, blow up that train. Or okay, London, blow up that train again. Um, so whether we, it, symbolically, dead or alive, as Bush, President Bush kind of portrayed the cowboyist one sec, uh, image, um, you know, it was important for American politics. But, you know, when you nation build, you've got to get the capital, right? So where did we attack? We first of all went to Kabul, right? Later we went to Tora Bora to try to get bin Laden and the other retreating people who ended up in Northwest Frontier Province in Pakistan. Uh, but if you're doing a criminal justice action, we would have gone straight to Tora Bora and just hunted him down. And we wouldn't care who was in charge of the government. And we wouldn't be worried about who's in charge. I mean, and we probably would have said, if we'd been objective about it, that the Taliban, while maybe criminal in the sense of letting bin Laden do things that ideally it should not have let bin Laden, et cetera, do, according to the UN Charter, Article 2, Paragraph 4 forbids invading another country to change its political independence or its territorial integrity. So according to the foundational principle of the UN Charter, Article 2, Paragraph 4, we could not invade Pakistan to change its government, that is, its political independence. Now the world acquiesced, again, in allowing the United States to state, overthrow the Taliban and put in a new government. But again, that put our resources, which are finite, and our attention on the capital, Kabul, and away from bin Laden. Finally, in the, and this is always pointed out in the press, I'm not sure it's the most important reason, because apparently we had bin Laden in our sights in December, January 2001 to 2002. But by the time we invaded Iraq in March 2003, we just started taking lots of troops out of Afghanistan, particularly the ones that are, might be useful in both wars. That is counterterrorism troops. And certainly when the, you know, Baghdad fell, but everybody didn't like w let us in and say, oh, we're so glad you came in. Won't you be our guests? No, they didn't react that way to the United States. And then we definitely sent in counterterrorism troops to Iraq, and they weren't no longer trying to seek out bin Laden. Um, Operation Enduring Freedom, according to the article, and still represents a good 15,000 troops out of the now 60,000 American odd troops there, plus NATO and other troops present. But I, I dare say they're, much, they're so busy fighting the Taliban in a guerrilla war, they can't spend too much time far away from Kandahar and Kabul and other places uh, in the country. Can I, you said you were in Afghanistan? Yes. I, I appreciate you filling in, because you obviously know the country better than I do. Um, if you care to, I'm not forcing you to, but since you have this knowledge. I'm uh, medical. Okay. Support. Okay. So You're a I, nurse? I was a blood donor for the blood donor center at Kandahar. Uh, and was only there a month before an IED popped my uh, Hummer down a hill. Wow. And uh, messed up my back. Oh, so sorry. So I was a month in country as well. But I'm a student of history and everything else. And so I delve a lot into it before I even left. Well, before I move on, do you care to tell us any stories or other than that gruesome one you referred to? <laughs> um, Impressions of the country? I'm from Arizona. That's where I grew up. Um, Afghanistan reminded me of northern Arizona, southern Utah. It was very Flagstaff? stark. Yeah, very, well, southern, more like Moab. 
very stark, very uh, rugged. Uh, but the people, like I said the other day, the people have a memory that goes back a thousand years. I mean, they, they're, you know, they'll, they'll talk about you know, the British a hundred years ago like it was last week, you know, and how they defeated the British three different times. And, you know, they, and, and, and they have a very long memory. They didn't defeat the Mughals, though, for a couple of centuries. <laughs> So, so it almost reminds me of, of almost Vietnam, and you know that was just the American War because then before that you had the French, and then before that you had you know it was just it just seems it's an area of the world that just kind of seems to have a lot of conflict because the resources are there, but the people don't have the resources to develop them. And so well, they don't else have keeps a wanting to come in and take those resources. And now they have some very valuable resources they discovered about a year ago. I forgot what kind of minerals, but. Uh, a lot of copper, a lot of, a lot of um, molybdenum. Um, the stuff that goes into every electronic device. Silver, lots of rare earth minerals. Um, so if they can have peace, you might get some investment. Um, I've been at Fort Benning the last year, and that's the major exit point for anyone who is a soldier or a civilian that's going to that area of the world. Um, we were sending more... Um, DOD civilians and uh, experts and translators and you know people there to build that infrastructure that we were soldiers. So well, yeah. In fact, the, the army used to provide most of its own logistics. Now they contract it out. Plus, you know, there's a tremendous aid budget as well that the army is sort of involved with and sort of not. I don't know yeah, the so details. So we were just the exit point to be able to medically clear them to send them to Afghanistan. There were, there were a lot of people, a lot of PhDs that I've met, a lot of you know, very smart people that were going there to help them build that infrastructure. And you said you were a blood donor. You mean you weren't providing the blood for Afghanistan? Uh, yeah, the military has its, maintains its own blood, blood donor system separate from the Red Cross. Um, and we collect blood at 28 different blood donors. From centers. soldiers? From soldiers, civilians, anyone who can have access to a federal military installation. Um, and in country, we actually do have emergency blood drives as well when we run low on specific blood types, when we do have uh, mass casualties. Or My aunt's brother was once head of the, the blood program for Red Cross. So yes, I'm a vampire. <laughs> well, he, I mean, he was, he was there, unfortunately, when the AIDS first hit. So he got tarred with that, the inevitable first time discovery of HIV and, and blood donations. So particularly from heroin addicts who, would, who needed the, did it for the money, because I guess occasionally you get money, right? Uh, it's been outlawed since, but you know, we used to be able to get money for, for blood. The only way you can take blood is a volunteer donation. And how much is health, just out of curiosity, I have a neighbor who does it every week. Is, it, is that healthy? Uh, the, the plasma or blood? I don't know. The plasma you can give twice a week. Blood can only give every 56 days. 56 days. Okay. And your body will replace all of those cells within three what 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 is the recovery period for? Three days. Wow. <laughs> so theoretically, you could give every three days. Um, in an emergency situation, in a combat zone, yes, we can take blood from soldiers every three days if we need it. In the civilian world here in the United States, every fifty-six days is what you can donate. One of the many logistical challenges of fighting a war, which you don't think about—at least I don't think about every day. Um, 
Counterinsurgency then is much more ambitious, but it worked in Iraq. So the thought is that Petraeus' strategy after his promotion implemented by Stanley McChrystal was thought to be they can do the same thing we did in Iraq. Now Iraq, was it a success? And was it because of the surge in uh, troops and the strategy shift from counterterrorism to nation-building counterinsurgency? Well, it's not a success in the sense that no country can build a democracy and a sustainable economy uh, overnight without a high level of consensus among political elites about how they'll go about governing. You can't get political elites to agree that this is kind of the way we're going to do things. Then you're arguing about the rules to make rules as opposed to what the rules should be. In other words, the decision-making process while you could never like agree on everything, immediately you've got to not be spending your time arguing about who gets to how you're going to decide things, but you've got to spend your time deciding. I'm going to build this thing here or, or there, not who gets to decide how. I mean, of course, every new country or every new regime has to go through that process, and some countries never finish the process. It's never a complete project anywhere in the world, but. You know, when you've got a constitution that she's high degree of legitimacy and everybody's on the same plane about how to interpret it, then you can have a government that will be stable uh, and the, the fights will be over who's going to win the election, not who is going to get the right to decide this or that. Uh, we thought that it, our solution to our problems in Afghanistan would be to try to d build a democracy as opposed to just having this quasi-tribal form of government where the tribal leaders heading different ethnic groups with power because of traditional legitimacy coming from inheritance, but also because they run the drug trade and each one of their specified drones would make them wealthy enough uh, to control their territories. And the central government would be there you know, to occupy a few government positions, but it wouldn't try to seriously keep the country safe with a national army try to educate the population by creating schools, try to give girls in particular opportunities in school that they never had under the Taliban. And most importantly, you have uh, a form of government that conceives of a strong state. By state, I mean Georgia. State, I mean the government and its laws, uh, controlling the borders, having a monopoly of coercion. In other words, no more drug dealing, because if you're a drug dealer, you've got a private army. And if you've got a private army, then you can disobey the central government whenever you want. And the central government can't come into your territory. Instead, they just make deals with you to, for you to control the territory. And that's not a modern state. That's more like feudalism with each little feudal lord, in this case a tribal chief or a warlord, if you want to call them that, controlling the security of an area, all the drug trafficking, which is the main source of income. Uh, and you know, making decisions to be your friend or your enemy depending on what you've done for me lately. Or making decisions based on whether you are essentially of the eth a civilization of Turkic peoples, that is the northern alliance to the north, like the Tajiks uh, or the Uzbeks, uh, etc. Or you are the civilization mostly to the south of the uh, Persian-speaking languages, Pashtun or Patan, being the most pr prominent of these, but others derive from Farsi uh, and the languages of, of Iran. 
The Northern Alliance, which was the alliance established uh, during this, the jihad against the Soviets in the 1980s, after the 1979 invasion, when Carter was president, uh, was primarily ethnic uh, Tajik, Uzbek, and other um, language groups, ethnic language, ethno-linguistic <coughs> groups derived from Turkic languages. That's the language of the Ottoman Empire originally. Um, and I guess you can take Turkish here at Georgia State, and it's a well-structured course if you want to plan for your future. Learning one of these series of exotic languages couldn't hurt you in your career, particularly if you have an, a bent towards an international affairs career. We also teach Arabic here, which of course would be an excellent one, and Chinese and so forth. It's not like Spanish and French like the old days. They tried to get you to, although it would be great to learn any foreign language, and I encourage that strongly, um, even if you never work overseas or work with foreign people, to learn a foreign language because it will educate you in ways you can never imagine if you really master the language. So I, I would tell you all, take at least three or four years of a foreign language while you're here because if you keep, that's enough so that you can go to the country and be fluent after a couple of weeks only. But if you never get out of the classroom, you'll never get that aha moment which comes from not speaking English for a few weeks and learning to speak in the language that you've studied. So, you know, if you're early in your college career, please plan. No, almost nobody does it. I don't know why, but please try to take three long years of of one foreign language. It doesn't really matter which one because it will enrich your life and it will also help your career. Certainly, if you want to work overseas, but even if you work domestically, it will enrich your life in ways you can't imagine. That's my little public relations statement on that <laughs> point. So we had the three models, one of which never came forward, criminal justice, uh, even though that was the model Europe approached, and counterterrorism, which we tried till about 2009, with the surge in Afghanistan trying to emulate the surge in Iraq. We went from counterterrorism to counterinsurgency. Many, many more troops. By the way, why would counterinsurgency require more troops? Right. And what are you doing when you're doing counterinsurgency? Trying to control them, I guess, without killing them. Well, not control them, but actually work with them, oh, yeah. uh, distributing out of the barracks, way out in the countryside, getting to know them, giving them food, giving them medical care, uh, trying to make them to like us. You think they'll like us? No. Well, I would say the following, that the drone missile attacks and other forms of collateral damage from air fire or bombardment, artillery, kills a lot of civilians and they hate us for that. And that's not an Afghan thing, that would be true anywhere. But I think, they, I think counterinsurgency, to the extent that we've done it in Afghanistan, I'm not so sure how much we've done it. You know, it, it makes them hate us less. And that might be, that might be something, or something, I'm not sure. Uh, but all, the problem with counterinsurgency is it's not really up to us in the end. Because although we can make them like us or hate us less, as the case may be, by doing things that they value, like getting rid of the terrorists in their neighborhood or killing them, or providing schools, health care, and getting, you know, being seen on the streets as some, something other than this guy sitting in Houston or some other base looking at a computer screen and shooting a drone missile. Um, 
we still depend on them to help themselves. And by them helping themselves, I'm not really talking about the average Afghan. I'm talking about the political elites who've got to create a government that functions. Counterinsurgency means that we are trying to leave institutions in the country and leaving the country much better off than we, than we found it. And it wouldn't be, take much in Afghanistan, considering they've had 30 years of war, which automatically makes it the poorest country in the world. If you look at the list of the 10 poorest countries in the world, other than Haiti, the countries um, I'm that I study and have a whole day conference on the 2nd of February that I've told you about, on the ninth floor of this building. We're going all day, so you can pop in any time if you are here on Wednesday the 2nd. But other than Haiti and all its problems, almost all the other nine countries are countries that are in war or just coming out of it. And why? They're poor because people are destroying rather than building. You know, war may be useful for munitions companies if they happen to be in your country or war profiteers around the world, but generally, you know, if you're destroying things, you're making things worse, not better. And if you do it for 31 years, since the 1979 invasion, when the Soviets tried to install Najibullah to replace Amin, who they installed previously but was not succeeding in quelling the rebellion, which became this insurgency, which became this jihad that threw out the Soviets, uh, Afghanistan wouldn't be in as nearly awful shape as it is. Now, US policy. Um, the, the article is posed as a US problem. And as I said just now, the US problem is partly the result of the fact that we tried to do the most ambitious strategy, uh, not immediately like we did in Iraq, where we tried to build democracy just right after the invasion uh, and handed over power to a, from the coalition governing authority to Iraqi interim government and then Iraqi elected government. Afghanistan, they had kind of a tribal structure that wasn't a modern state. Now, we're still not trying to create a modern state, but they want to have regular elections. The last set of elections in 2009 were stolen by Karzai, the president. So we don't have democracy. We haven't even met the minimum standards of democracy. At least in Iraq, there's not widespread allegations of electoral fraud. They can't get along with each other because of their ethnic diversity, their religious divides and just because they've never had the historical experience of sustaining democracy. So they don't really have an intuitive sense about how to go about doing it. Um, but at least, you know, they don't flunk the test of democracy. Afghanistan just flunks it by cheating. Yeah. Yeah, um, you keep referring back to Iraq, but I don't want to know what happened. Can you explain in a nutshell like, what happened there? We're still there. It's not over. Well, I mean, what's happening in Iraq? We have handed over power to Iraq, Iraqi sovereignty, so we wouldn't be accused of being occupiers legally. But we've got the largest embassy in the world in Baghdad now. I don't know if it's finished, but it's huge. Um, we've got 50,000 troops as opposed to 160,000 troops. So technically, we're, we're all, I don't know if we're official, officially out. I think we're officially out. And how are they doing? And that was about six months ago, I think, they declared. We're no longer in Iraq. There are 50,000 troops there, which is. We're not, we're not in the seas. Well, that, but that's even more being in the country if you're in the countryside than being in the city. This, the green zone, I guess, is now safe, which was quite an achievement. Because uh, apparently the drive to the green zone and the green zone itself are two of the most dangerous places to be in the whole country. 
but they ethnically cleansed all the neighborhoods for us, which is a terrible thing and a terrible process. But if none of your neighbors are the wrong ethnic group, then you won't, you're not going to kill your neighbors. That, that's the other underside of the improvement of Iraq. Is it, it, and it's also true of the improvement of Europe since World War II, is that you know, people have a right to live where they've always lived for centuries. But once guys start fighting with each other, saying basically this, this, this ethnic group has this area and some other ethnic group has some other areas, after you've done it, things tend to calm down. That's a dirty little secret about world history of human beings and civilization. It's not so pleasant to swallow. Um, you can't do that in Afghanistan yet, and possibly ever, unless you really have widespread civil war. Uh, Iraq is an ur urban country, so you're moving neighborhoods. So not Baghdad is still multicultural, but I don't know exactly how it works, but you know, instead of having populations mixed all over the place now, I would probably a third of it is one part and another third is another part and so forth. Something of that magnitude. There's still, you know, in other parts of the country that have ethnic problems, and I don't know if it's because they haven't been ethnically cleansed or whether they've just decided to blow up Christian churches. They used to have a huge Jewish population as well, but since the early 50s, the Jews of Iraq and Iran emigrated to Israel. Um, there's still a lot of communal secular terrorism and violence. I think if you look for it, it doesn't make the front pages anymore because Americans aren't getting killed in large numbers like they used to. But I think you're probably going to find six to eight bombs a week killing up to 100 Iraqis. Um, if we hadn't invaded Iraq, there'd be at least 100,000 people alive today who weren't alive, who are not alive. Uh, even if you think we liberated Iraq from Saddam, speaking personally, I don't know how you compare without saying what your values are, but you know, it's hard to say that you know, on every indicator, Iraq is better off. Because the Civil War has not even started yet, and they're still killing a dozen to uh, several hundred a week, depending on how many bombs have gone up. Um, a particularly worse, in fact, is that uh, one of the, the son of a former famous cleric has returned from self-exile uh, and come back. And uh, Sadr, who had the Sadr militia, is apparently making a political power play. And he's someone who apparently believes in using weapons to get his way. And he's so young, I don't think he's, he's certainly not over 40, uh, that you know, go, spending three years in Iran is nothing to plan, probably with Iranian help, his takeover of the country or a piece of it, or to serve Iranian interests. Yeah. Um, when you say that was really controlled, isn't it also from the enemy, like from Al-Qaeda and I mean, their own bombs as well, or is that just American casualties? Like no, it's not American. It's not American. I don't mean American. I mean, like, is it just our, our bombs, our methods of, of warfare that have created the casualty amounts? No, these are Iraqis killing Iraqis. Okay. But if we hadn't started the war, they wouldn't have been killing each other, because Saddam would have been in power, and Saddam had a national security state that didn't allow any ethnic opposition, especially since he was a minority Sunni 
He didn't let the Shia get powerful. Now the Shia has the majority because they're the majority of the population. And so they occupied the government agencies and were wiping out Sunnis. So the Sunnis were fighting the Shia for quite a few years. Then Al-Qaeda Mesopotamia, which was the local branch of Al-Qaeda, Zarqari was the head of it until we assassinated him using non-torture methods of interrogation, incidentally. Um, so the surge, which gave us more troops, plus the assassination of Zarqari, plus um, the awakening, which was the name of the movement of the tribal, Sunni tribal chiefs who decided that Al-Qaeda was their enemy, not the Americans. So instead of attacking the Americans, these Sunni tribal chiefs were hired into the army for very nice fees. I'm sure they paid off these tribal chiefs in the millions of dollars. And certainly anyone who joined the national military got a bonus. And so they helped the Americans fight Al-Qaeda instead of fighting against the Americans. And in my opinion, based on what I've read, and I'm no expert on this, this was probably the most important of the reasons for the surge's success. I don't think it was the counterinsurgency. Because I don't think you know, we suddenly started. I know we put more soldiers in the communities. And they were doing more patrolling and, and that sort of thing. And that was all to the good. But I think the fact that our biggest enemies in the country fought on our side instead of their side as a result of a brilliant move on our part and their part was, was uh, the most important of various factors. So that's what's going on in Iraq, I guess. <laughs> so they did a lot of counterinsurgency. The, the time when things turned around, to, at the end, to 2006 was the worst year for the Americans and the Iraqis. And th those of you who are old enough to remember the news and listen to the news, you will know how bad the news was from Iraq. Don't get bad news from the Iraq on, on our news media. Part of it's because we don't pay attention. And the structure of news media and reporting is changing. Um, but part of it is things are not as bad. You know, the, the trend is better whether the trend can continue or, or it's turning backwards. The latest news in the last month is things have gotten a lot worse. But that's in part because our news media covers Christian churches getting bombing because our news media is interested in Christians. When Muslims get killed, well, it's bad, but we don't have the audience for that kind of thing. Uh, there was an interesting quote I remember. Anyone know who Patricia Schroeder was? She was a congresswoman who ran briefly for president. And during the 1994 Rwanda genocide, they asked her, she was a congresswoman, um, have you heard anything about what's going on in Rwanda? This is about a month into the genocide, which had the fastest number of people killed in world history. All of them almost all killed with machetes, <coughs> machetes, not with gunfire. And she said, that's a really good question. You know, I've been hearing about this, but all my constituents are, are talking about is how many animals are being threatened. <laughs> now, I mean, she was telling, she gave a good insight, you know, what, what Americans care about, and there's nothing wrong with caring about cruelty to animals or dying species. But, you know, we had human beings being killed at the fastest rate in human his, recorded human history, and Americans in her district, you know, I don't know if she was literally or metaphorically speaking, but, you know, she was just saying, that's what I hear about from my constituents. Up to 800,000 out of a population of about 2 million in 11 weeks or 12 weeks. Uh, mostly Tutsis were the victims of Hutus, but some moderate Hutus were killed as well. If you've seen Hotel Rwanda, the movie, you see one portrayal of that whole situation. Um, just 
terrible in the sense that the time President Clinton said we can't do anything about it. The reaction to the assassination of Belgian peacekeeping troops was to cut the mission of the United Nations in half and to accept the Rwandan government's statement that there's nothing going on because nobody wanted to do anything. And the question is whether we can build a worldwide movement to care about people dying regardless of what their nationality is. It just doesn't seem quite, I thought that Darfur genocide was going to get governments to have nothing else to talk about. People getting killed who are victims, regardless of what their religion is, regardless of whether they're an ally or not, regardless of whether their leaders are drug traffickers or not, which plays a big role, whether they have oil. Um, Southern Sudan was a genocide for three decades. And they just voted for independence last week, and we'll see whether the country is partitioned or not. I, I wouldn't have ever bet on it, but it seems to be moving in that direction. Okay, so um, the specifics are, as you probably know, if, and certainly if you've read the chapter, that the Taliban has not resumed power since we threw them out almost, well, nine years, uh, uh, yeah, nine and a half years ago. Um, but like all the governments the last 30 years, just because you control the capital doesn't mean you control the country. So the Taliban has controlled the southern part of the country, the, the provincial capital, Kandahar, and almost all the land just south of Kabul. Now control, what does control mean? In all civil wars, control is a kind of ambiguous word. Uh, Having a persistent presence and scaring the heck out of everybody when anyone sees you would be kind of a minimalist definition. Uh, you know, NATO has gone into Kandahar three or four times. They're in there now. And we reestablished NATO control, mostly with American troops, in Kandahar, its provincial capital of the South. But why is it we got to keep going back to reestablish control? Well, because we don't have enough resources, including soldiers, so uh, even when we're there, soldiers sleep at night. You want to have them defend 24-7? You need a lot of soldiers to do that. They probably need to sleep in shifts. But in any event, you know, if, if soldiers sleep at night, that means they can ambush at night. So even when we're in there in a big way and we control the office buildings by day, that doesn't stop them from blowing up stuff at night. And eventually, you know, we got other problems in other parts of the country, so we got to move troops to another part of the country, which means we're moving them out of Kandahar, which means the ethnic Pashtuns, which is the base of the Taliban militia, which came with the same ethnic group, the Patans, or the Pashtuns, if you want to call them that, uh, in the schools in Northwest Frontier Province and also Baluchistan, the two provinces on the Afghan and Iranian border, where they were taught to memorize the Quran as kids, because that's what you do in a fundamentalist Islamic school of a Sunni type, financed by the government of Saudi Arabia. So they memorized the Quran in Arabic, a language they, I don't know if they understand it, but certainly not their first language. And I don't know which dialect of Arabic, ancient Arabic, is similar to, or whether it's just completely unintelligible. Uh, and they were taught about jihad, and they learned that, you know, while the jihad against the Soviets was being fought, they thought that was the highest calling. Note that, you know, they're just like any religion I know of, they're different interpretations of Islam. I've heard that jihad uh, is only permissible in Islam when the Messiah has come. But according to Judaism and, and Islam, the Messiah hasn't come. 
Others say jihad is, you know, whenever any cleric says it is. And others say it's a struggle, but it's a personal struggle. Others say, no, it's to get rid of the imperialist outsider, like the British 100 years ago, or the Americans now, or the Soviets, the godless monolithic communism Soviets that got these jihadis into fighting in the first place after the 1979 invasion of the Soviet Union. And thanks to our surface-to-air missiles, got them out 10 years later, but didn't get rid of all the weapons we brought into the country, didn't br eliminate the warlords who got so much richer over, over heroin trafficking, because it's a lot easier to traffic in wartime than peacetime where the peacetime the government says, hey, you're not allowed to have guns like this because you know, we're all in charge of this together. So you have jihadis coming out of these schools based in Pakistan, and now the Taliban militia is based in Pakistan because it's safe there because the Pakistani government officially doesn't allow the American military into Pakistan. So our troops are all based in Afghanistan, although obviously we have special forces coming across the border. And we have drone missiles. And before that, we had air-to-air -air missiles fired, I guess, from helicopters or airplanes. And fighting on the cheap without troops on the ground in Pakistan, except for special forces. And I have no idea how many special forces are on the ground. Now, the drone missiles, and before them, the other kinds of missiles, are designed to fight a war, uh, you know, causing casualties, causing lots of damage. But ultimately, you can't win without troops on the ground. You need infantry to control a territory. One reason is drone missiles are going to be fired only when you've got intelligence to say so-and-so is traveling on a road at a certain time. The only time you usually get intelligence for these things are, are events like weddings. So a lot of these drone attacks occur at weddings. Now, if you were an Afghan, would you like the Americans if they disrupted your wedding by killing 50 people? Even if one of the guys was Al-Qaeda, and he may not always be, or Taliban, which the American military and the American politicians tend to say is the same thing. So you know we're much better off with troops on the ground who can go to the wedding, arrest or shoot the guy you think is the bad guy, at least not kill all the women and children. I mean, we do have a phenomenon worldwide of women suicidal bombers, but generally not found yet outside of Middle East area. And you know, I, I, I worry that the use of drone missiles is going to be the end of America 50 years from now. Because I don't think this technology, we worry a lot about nuclear bombs and terrorists, but once the, someone gets a drone missile, why can't they fire drone missiles in American cities? And why, who are we to say, oh, only we are allowed to use drone missiles? the way we say with nuclear weapons. And who would, who would enforce that? And you know, there are an awful lot of smart people in universities around the world. Some of them are going to end up wanting to go to Al-Qaeda because they hate the United States because they killed their uncle or their brother or their cousin. Has nothing to do with ideology, or maybe it does have something to do with ideology. So that's one possible downside consequence of our strategy now to not really fight a war with troops on the ground. But it's just not, it's not political non-starter. We have a, a very odd set of politics, I guess, in the United States. On the one hand, it's good, right? Because without a conscript army, they can't send people 
you know, from the middle class off to war because the middle class won't stand for it. So we have a volunteer army, which is quote unquote volunteer, filled up with poor kids, poor whites mostly from the South, Hispanics, and African Americans. And politically, that means you know, the people who vote the least are families with the least amount of money. In the case of many Hispanics, they're not even US citizens, or their family's not US citizens. So unless the average American cares about everybody in their politics, you just it's kind of like a credit card war. You know? We're paying for this war, and none of us feel it. I mean, I don't feel the war except the fact that I study it and think about it, because I'm a political scientist. But you know, maybe if this is a typical Georgia State classroom, a quarter of you have a family member in the military or a cousin or something. Would that be about right? How many people have a family member in the military? Oh, more than a quarter. Okay. Um, and how many of those are full-time? How many are reserves? Oh, almost all full-time. So 45% if, I, if I'm correct in what I just observed, or maybe even 50% of you have someone in the military, which is really very high. I think that's amazingly high. Um, if you went to Yale or Harvard and I asked the same question, I doubt you get one hand raised. Not one. As rich people send their kids to go to law school and business school, and they, the parents pay for it. Or even if they don't pay for it, if you go to business school or law school, the bank will give you a loan. Um, that is, if you go to business schools like Stanford and Yale and Harvard, which you can get into if you've always had the best education, and daddy's given a contribution, et cetera. Now, I don't want to exaggerate this too much, because most alumni children don't get into their parents' college. but. There are certain class advantages in America. So politically, if you want to look at the Afghan war, why did we go into Afghan and Iraq? I don't think I'm being too cynical. And I, I would love if someone would challenge me and tell me I'm wrong or my theory's messed up. But if you're George Bush uh, and you say, well, I'll send the army in, and I, I love these American, proud, loyal Americans. The whites are poor whites who are socially conservative. They don't vote their pocketbook, right? They don't vote, vote on class or economic issues the way they did during the Depression. They vote on lifestyle social issues like abortion, homosexuality, uh, conservative approaches, uh, et cetera, family first. Um, so they're our base. They'll support us. They really support uh, the heart of our base. We may lose a few people who've been over for their 16th tour, but you know, the rest of them will support us. The Hispanics don't vote. They make up about a third of the US military. Am I right about that? Third, imagine that. And African Americans will never vote for us. So it doesn't matter if they're angry at us or not, because 95% of African Americans vote for the Democrats. So the middle class doesn't care, because their kids are not fighting. And two-thirds of my army either can't vote or never will vote. And the other third always will vote for us. At least they'll vote for us in the next eight years, and that's all we care about. So the, we, one reason we're in Afghanistan and Iraq is it's a totally different situation from Korea and Vietnam, both of which are, seemed like incredibly long wars. I, didn't, I lived at the end. I mean, I was alive at the end of, as an infant uh, in the Korean War. Uh, and the Vietnam War, which I remember very well, seemed like eternity. And yet we were there, nothing like these two wars. 
It seemed like eternity. I mean, of course, Vietnam had half a million soldiers at its peak. We lost 68,000 American lives and many more wounded. Um, two million Vietnamese died in that war with us, and another million had died a decade earlier in their war with the French. So, you know, in Vietnam, they just couldn't continue the war because they were drafting not rich kids, they found a way to get out of it, but you know, middle class people, and they didn't want to die in Vietnam. And then we heard about how much was lying was going on from the Pentagon Papers, the WikiLeaks of, of that era. So now we've got a, an army that doesn't have to worry about that because there's no draft. And it makes sense because you need specialists with lots of years of specialization and you have a career. And the army is much more quote unquote professional, but also means it's much more insulated from American society. Now they live in neighborhoods like everyone else, at least you know neighborhoods according to how much money they earn. If you're a top officer in the military, I guess you live in a full service house on a military base with 24 seven staff. So they live like multimillionaires, I guess. Um, but you know, generally speaking, what's going on in Afghanistan now that nobody watches the nightly news, and the only news we get is extremely partisan. Democrats watch MSNBC, the Republicans watch Fox News. So you got a few facts here and there, but it's mostly opinion. And ratings are higher the more opinions and more vehement and more disgraceful that rhetoric gets. And so we can't even make policy, and this is true of all these countries we're gonna study, in a way that's deliberative, calm, rational. I guess I've talked about this two or th twice now in this course already, but you know, it, it strikes me that these talk TV and talk radio stations and, and other opinionators really act as, as veto players in American political discussion. So we don't have the capacity to say, you know, what are our interests there? Is it working? There's no troops on the, uh, there's no repress corps on the ground like during the Vietnam War. One of the reasons we had TV cameras showing battles, you know, what we see is you know, embedded reporters and cameramen showing some stage scene on the TV if it's ever shown at all. And we have Hollywood movies, which I imagine are somewhat accurate or maybe very accurate. I don't really have any idea because I don't know what the real thing looks like. Um, so question number one is, are we achieving our objectives? These are the questions that nobody asks very calmly and rationally and without a political motive to provide the answer. So what are our objectives? If our objectives are criminal justice, it's just to get arrest bin Laden and Mullah Omar and five or six other top leaders, put them on trial, and either execute them or put them in, in a prison somewhere. Uh, we, did, we haven't succeeded either. We, haven't, we don't have Mullah Omar, we don't have Osama bin Laden. Another objective would be, under counterinsurgency, is create a democratic government that's self-sustaining and where the elites rule based according to democratic procedures in the Constitution. Haven't gotten there yet. We got a president who rigged the election because he didn't want to give up power, and all of his cabinet mem members are militia leaders, otherwise known as tribal leaders who basically are there because if you don't put them there, they'll shoot you. Better to have them neutral than to be against you. So we don't have a democratic government, but you know, a lot of half the world's governments are not even remotely democratic, so I suppose that's not the end of the world. 
Um, are we cutting back on terrorism? Are we cutting back on Al-Qaeda? What's the answer to that? Who's done the reading? Or well, just impressions? No. A lot of it's gone up. Like, a, well, at least when they interviewed the people who lived in those countries, they felt they didn't feel as, they felt less safe. They felt like they didn't like people. Do Americans care whether countries. they feel safe? Um, yeah, why not? Well, I mean, in a sense, we do care because yeah. for us to defeat the terrorists, according to the theory of counterinsurgency, if they don't feel safe, they'll just give in to the terrorists. One of the strategies that Hitler used is the Nazis and terrorists use is you attack the government and the people will reward you and blame the government for not keeping them safe from you. So you've got every incentive to attack because while they'll hate you in the short run and the long run, they'll blame the government for not keeping them safe. So we do care from the counterinsurgency theoretical point of view about whether we can make the country safe for the Afghans. But how about for us? We didn't go in worrying about the poor Afghans originally. We haven't been attacked, so therefore it's a, it's a success. No, well, I mean, it begs I the mean that there's something to that, right? Al we haven't been attacked by Al Qaeda Central, and it's a fair, fair point. We've had a Bin Laden on the run. Well, we've destabilized Pakistan. Pakistan has nukes. I mean, some people say that Pakistan is a failed state, just being propped up by the United States and their little war, you know, cold war with India. So, you know, what's the next step? Well, not only that, they. There could be a coup, in which case you'd have a, could have an Islamist, jihadist-oriented government like Iran. Instead of being an ally, they'd be an enemy with nuclear weapons. I don't know if it's a failed state, because the army is very strong. I don't think the army would permit a non-secular government. We would certainly, the CIA would, I can almost guarantee, give huge amounts of money to those generals who would be willing to do a counter-coup against an Islamist government, and there wouldn't be any debate from Obama either. Um, it's not going well in Afghanistan, but again, it wasn't going well in Iraq five years ago. So, you know, these things take time. Uh, maybe we can't ever have a, a democratic government in Afghanistan, but we did achieve the goal of disrupting al-Qaeda. One can obviously ask whether local al-Qaeda has become much more numerous because of the two invasions, because of Abu Ghraib, worst of all, because of all the sexual acts that were done that humiliated the detainees that are on websites now that look like an attack on Islam. Because for Muslims, at least in that part of the world, my impression is that when males and females perform quasi-sexual acts or ask sexual acts to be done of prisoners, you're attacking their religion. And it may not be just Islam that people would feel that way as well. But anyway, it's been a recruitment tool for al-Qaeda, which would never have happened if we'd never invaded Iraq. Now, why it happened, we didn't have, that didn't have to happen because we invaded Iraq. But it, it did, and we're stuck with that for posterity, I guess. Um, the question of what to do. Do we pull out or do we stay? Was it Vice President Biden that said that we're probably going to be in Afghanistan for another 50 years like we've been 
Well, except it's different because Korea and Germany are not combat situations, just there in case and to deter. Being in Afghanistan for 50 years or Iraq for 50 years under combat or at least major police-keeping roles is a huge commitment and resources. I was struck in the reading by the fact that it said that they only budgeted in 2008 $35 billion for the two countries' armed military operations. Well, I say only because on the news media they used to say we spend one and a half to two billion a week in Iraq alone. So if you do the math, that's 180 to 100 billion a year in Iraq, another 80, 100 billion dollars a year in Afghanistan. So I don't know how they break down fixed costs with additional costs, but we are spending a fortune <coughs> that could be spent. There are opportunity costs to these funds, schools, hospitals, here and there. Um, is it really a dilemma? I mean, can we pull out? What would happen if we pulled out? Well, one thing that might happen if we pulled out is that the Afghans would have to live with each other and they'd figure out a way to get along with each other. Another possibility is they blow each other's brains out. As far as Al-Qaeda goes, it's not clear that Al-Qaeda Center hasn't already moved to Yemen or to East Africa or other places or that Al-Qaeda even has a Al-Qaeda Central. Maybe Al-Qaeda is really just a network of these organizations that draw inspiration from websites and videos of Osama bin Laden. There is one compelling argument for, for staying, uh, and that is it will send a signal that the jihadists can beat us. And so maybe we have to win. On the other hand, that was the same argument that was used in Vietnam, and it turned out the domino effect didn't exist. We were worried that if we pulled out, there'd be a signal to communist insurgencies all around the world, you can beat the Americans if you try hard enough. And the domino theory didn't really hold. It kind of held in Laos and Cambodia, but it stopped there. The North Vietnamese conquered South Vietnam soon after we pulled out. No one in America seemed to care. Uh, if that's any precedent at all, then what could happen is nobody in the America will care. I'd be so glad we got out of that mess, save the money, save the lives, no more tension, no more stress. The big question is, would there be a domino effect with other jihadists around the world? In other words, Afghanistan fell to the Taliban, the Americans are defeated, and this time they're gone for good. Uh, let's do the same thing in Saudi Arabia. Let's do the same thing all around the Muslim world first and get Islamist regimes in power. And finally, let's go to Washington, get even. Because one possible long-term consequence is people who join these groups, the groups are very ideological, and they, they think in ideological terms. But the studies seem to indicate that the motive for joining is not, oh, I'm a jihadist. The motive is, you killed my friend and I'm going to get even for you. Now, these are still all theories. But if the motive is, to, is getting even, the good news is we don't have this ideology out there that's out of control. It's not you know, Islamicism. It, it's, it's just getting even. And eventually, there are only so many people who want to get even with you. On the other hand, if they want to get even with you, it means there's going to be a lot of backlash in the first years we get out of there. 
So to conclude on today's discussion, you know, this is a, a terrible situation for everyone concerned. We didn't ask for this, yeah, but we didn't have to invade either. And now that we've invaded, nobody feels like we can ever pull out. Shades of Vietnam uh, all over again, shades of Iraq at the same time. And it's going to make the American military super stretched to the point where the draft probably will have to come back. Because how many times can you expect people to go to seven, eight, nine tours away from their family when they have a civilian career on reserve? Or even if you're not in reserve and you're full time, how many times do you want to spend your life overseas? Okay, thank you, and we'll see you on Thursday.